Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello, my name is Stephen Schaefer, and I'm excited to bring to you another great interview. Today's guest is Dr. Danu Jayaseelan. That's right, today I'll be chatting with one of our very own AOMPT podcast co-hosts. Dr. Jayaseelan completed his doctorate in physical therapy from the George Washington University, fellowship training at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and is currently completing a doctorate in health sciences also through GWU. He is an associate professor at the GWU DPT program a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist, and he maintains limited clinical practice. He is co-academic director of the Johns Hopkins Hospital and GWU Orthopedic Residency Program, faculty at the Virginia Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy Institute, and a senior faculty advisor with Maitland Australian Physiotherapy Seminars. He has published numerous peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and monographs in his primary research interest areas of manual therapy and peripheral pain conditions, primarily tendinopathy and patellofemoral pain. We invited Dr. J.S. Seelan to the podcast today because he was recently the primary author of an article published in the Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy titled, Manual Therapy Should Not Be on the Sideline in the Game of Treating Tendinopathy. Both manual therapy and the management of tendinopathy are interesting topics, so let's avoid any further delay and get to the interview. Dr. J.S. Seelan, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good, Steve. Thanks for having me. Well, we are stoked to have you here. And normally I would know you by your first name, but since you're a guest today, I'm going to stick to the more formal version of Dr. J. Asilin because you've more than earned that title. And I think the audience should know and be aware of your expertise. Speaking of which, I know that one of your primary interests within the profession is the management of peripheral pain conditions. And it's of course true that tendinopathy fits into that category. Based on your knowledge of this condition, or perhaps we should say group of conditions, can you speak to us about how common tendinopathy is? Uh, yeah, sure. First, I will say, though, please just call me Danu. JSCLN just takes too long. Um, when it comes to tendinopathy, it will probably be the first time I say it of many times today. But it's going to depend on how common tendinopathy is based on a number of different things. I would say, one, it depends on which tendon we're talking about. So when we think about Achilles tendinopathy or patellar tendinopathy, those are going to be more common than, let's say, perineal tendinopathy of the foot. Or GTPS is probably going to be more common than a flexor tendinopathy of the finger. So it depends on which tendon we're talking about, it depends on which population we're going to be talking about. So the active population is probably going to be more prone to these repetitive overuse conditions. It depends on how we're actually defining tendinopathy. If we're defining it as load-induced tendinopathy or systemic tendinopathy, which could be related to like diabetes or medications, if we're using clinical diagnoses versus imaging. So all those things considered, tendinopathy is very common. If you're in orthopedics or you're in sports practices, you're going to see it. You're going to see it frequently, but it will depend on a number of different things to say specific numbers, if that makes sense. 
That does make sense. And as a full-time clinician, I think I can say with confidence that most likely not a day goes by where I don't see some patient with some form of tendinopathy. And that's part of why I find this topic to be so interesting. I think if you're a clinician and for that matter, an academic, a researcher, an educator, and you're not paying attention to tendinopathy, there's going to be a problem there. We all need to know it at all levels of the profession. And that's one of the reasons why when I saw this paper, I was so excited about it. Speaking of which, and I didn't mention this earlier, but I'm going to go ahead and mention it now because I think it's important for the audience. This particular manuscript isn't a research study. It's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's more of a commentary or an editorial talking about expert opinion on tendinopathy and why manual therapy should not be on the sideline. And building off that point, I know per in part what you just said, this is a huge topic, but based on the extensive studying and research into tendinopathy, can you talk to us not so much about what we know, but what are the current gaps What do we not know? What are we missing with respect to tendinopathy and clinical practice? Sure. Yeah, I think we don't know what we don't know until we try to know it. And so there are a lot of gaps in the research, and that's why we need to continue to do research. We have a lot of high-quality researchers still working on this. In my eyes, from an editorial perspective, a clinical perspective, there's still a number of specific gaps related, I think, to terminology. So as much as we know about the terminology, you know, tendinitis versus tendinopathy versus tendinosis, it still gets confused. And it seems unfortunate that so much time has gone by and so much has been out there, but there seems to be a disconnect on how we're actually phrasing it. And so I think as we go forward with research, there are a number of different consensus statements that have been published in the last few years. And if we want to try to keep consistency and really close these gaps, I think using specific, consistent terminology, consistent with the ICON statements that have been published in BJSM, that's really essential to start. The other thing I think that is a major gap in a lot of the tendinopathy research is the people that have maybe more than just one spot of pain or have pain that has been persistent after failed intervention. So a lot of times when we think about research, I think there's a tendency to try to keep it clean so that we can have as many or as few confounding variables as possible. And so the more we kind of be specific about the inclusion criteria, the exclusion criteria, it waters down the clinical relevance. And there's always going to be a disconnect in those two things. But People with tendinopathy, a lot of them have this persistent pain that hasn't gotten better despite best evidence directed treatment. And so I want to know what do we do about those individuals? How do we manage those people that have had therapy before, have had exercise progressions before, and still have pain? What about the people that maybe have multiple spots of pain or multiple locations of pain or severe pain that doesn't necessarily get back to baseline when they're not exercising? Those people are oftentimes excluded from the studies that we're looking at and the studies that guide our practice. But those are actually a lot of the people that need the care the most. And so we need to do a better job, I think, of maybe broadening our inclusion and exclusion criteria to make it so that the people that we're evaluating our interventions on are people that we actually see in clinical practice. And if we can do that, I think we'll start to bridge a lot of the gaps that really exist in current literature. 
I think those are great points, and I'd actually like to dive into a couple of them a little bit further. Since you brought up the topic, and I agree with you, there's often a lot of confusion on this, and that's both from a patient and provider perspective. Can you briefly give us in the audience a little rundown on the difference between tendinitis, tendinopathy, and tendinosis? Yeah, I think historically tendinitis has been used as any related tendon pain, but with it comes the connotation that there's an actual inflammatory process. There's been a lot of studies that have kind of suggested that inflammation might not be the primary problem, especially if it's past the acute phase of flare-up or past the acute phase of onset. And those are the individuals oftentimes that might end up taking medication where they, they might not need it. When we look at tendinopathy, it's more of an umbrella term for any load-induced pain that's oftentimes persistent that hasn't gone away maybe with time. And then tendinosis is actually more of a, I would say like a, a research-based diagnosis because you actually need some histopathological evidence to suggest that certain changes have occurred to make it a tendinosis versus a peritonitis or whatever it might be. So I think sticking with tendinopathy, if there's not a known acute inflammatory process, would be the best bet for any load-induced tendon problem. Excellent. Thank you for those definitions. I think that's helpful, or I assume it's helpful for some of the audience. In addition, I also really appreciate your comment about how our attempts to be so specific in the research realm water down the clinical relevance of some of those outcomes. You know, it's the classic scenario that as a clinician, you read the study and you think to yourself, well, this looks nothing like what I see in the clinic. It doesn't mean that information isn't useful. It just means we have to digest it in terms of its relevance in combination with everything else we know. And I don't know if I have a question here per se, but I think one of my comments is I'd really like to see both types of research that you mentioned. I'm super interested in, let's call it the geeky, not immediately clinically relevant stuff or, you know, the super focused, narrow stuff, because it teaches me. And the more I know, and the more I read these studies, I feel like I start to develop better knowledge and better clinical reasoning processes. But then I also want to see these larger, less pared down studies that look more like actual clinical practice. And I've always felt that it's the melding of those two different types of things, plus all the other stuff that we learn and experience in the clinic that's really, truly going to help us move forward in the best way possible to help our patients the most effective, the most efficient way that we possibly can. And I'll also add in that I'm actually a proponent of both. I don't want to make it seem that we only need to do more of the studies that I was kind of mentioning. I think there's a gap because there aren't as many studies, but we do need these really clean trials that are randomized, that are maybe cross-sectional of people that have a condition and no other conditions. And we need those studies to inform mechanisms and to inform how we can move forward from a, a basic level. But I would also say that when we get into clinical practice, it's not as frequent that you see people with this isolated tendon problem that gets better with progressive load or unload. Maybe at least in my practice. So potentially this is anecdotal and biased, but I do think that there is a need to study people that don't fit into these studies. 
but we need both types for sure. And speaking of the studies, let's go a little bit further and get a little bit more specific. What does the scientific evidence tell us about the effects of manual therapy on tendinopathy? Well, there's a good question and there's not a good answer for that because when it comes to manual therapy and in tendinopathy, there's actually not a lot of evidence at all. So when we talk about the science of manual therapy on tendinopathy, we're doing a lot of extrapolation from our other studies that have looked at mechanisms and have looked at more of the basic science type of outputs when it comes to manual therapy on musculoskeletal conditions. So the purpose of the paper, I think, fits a couple of different realms, but I think there's almost like a call to arms, no pun intended, that there should be more manual therapy studies, I think, done as it relates to tendinopathy because it's really in its infancy. I think there's a potential bias away from using manual therapy for this condition, which I understand from some perspective. But I think that if we don't do more studies, we won't determine really is this helpful or not. So there's a lot of case reports or a couple of them are mine. There's a number of randomized control trials primarily when it comes to thinking about like lateral elbow tendinopathy or supraspinatus or rotator cuff tendinopathy, there's not a lot of clinical trials when it comes to actually the lower quarter tendinopathies, Achilles tendinopathy, there's a few, patellar tendinopathy, not many, there's some soft tissue, GTPS, not many at all. So I think first step is realizing that, again, this is a gap, that there's not a lot when it comes to manual therapy and tendinopathy. So we are trying to extrapolate, and maybe that becomes mechanistic in that way. But when we think about tendinopathy, I think it's pretty clear that there's certain findings that are pretty pervasive with tendinopathy, and that's usually going to be localized pain that's worse with activity. There's oftentimes decreased muscle performance. There's sometimes sensitization of the nervous system. So maybe pain's not just in that local spot, but uh, maybe they have pain other places and maybe they have decreased tolerance to pressure or decreased descending inhibition, which makes it easier to have more pain potentially. And they oftentimes have stiffness or mobility deficits, whether that's in the joint or the soft tissue. And those are all indications for manual therapy. Manual therapy has been associated with improving mobility of soft tissue and the joint. Manual therapy has been associated with decreased pain locally and at remote sites. And then um, manual therapy has also been associated with improving muscle performance or motor performance. So we are kind of making some connections based on some theory, but the, the scientific evidence from studies that have looked at it, it really is lacking. And that, that's something that needs to be looked at a, a little bit further. To pull one small theme out of what you were just talking about, I think a great example is the question of, do we treat the joint or the tendon when somebody presents with signs and symptoms consistent with tendinopathy? And I guess to start with a little bit of an analogy and then to explain a little bit of what I do in the clinic, the patient comes in and they have tendinopathy and I'll explain to them, well, imagine that you're using your arm to tug on a locked door and then you hurt your arm. The question becomes, do I treat the arm first or do I unlock the door? And the short, simple answer is I don't know until I explore further. I find sometimes I have to treat the arm. In this case, that would be the tendon, the thing that's painful and hurting. 
And sometimes I need to unlock the door and then the tendon or the arm will take care of itself. So if you just keep pulling on something that won't move, arm and door in the analogy, but then tendon and locked joint in the clinical example, then maybe you just keep injuring yourself. And that was something I thought of because you're talking about how manual therapy can improve mobility. So maybe with an Achilles tendinopathy, one of the first things I do is I really attack that stiff, rigid, talocruel joint. And then once the joint moves more fluidly, maybe that's going to cause the tendon to work in a less aggressive fashion to try and move the ankle. Or maybe that's more of a central processing treatment effect, a neurophysiological effect. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's other things that I don't understand. But my approach in that situation is to always experiment on my patient, see how they respond, and try to figure out which technique is causing this person in this scenario to have the most functional improvement. Is it the soft tissue mobilization? Is it friction massage? Is it a joint mobilization? Is it patient-directed self-stretching? And for me, it's an experiment. Because I don't have perfect rules laid out in front of me, and I don't automatically from the beginning know precisely what to do, it's an adventure. It's a little bit of a puzzle, so to speak. And I want to figure out how all the pieces fit together so I can direct that patient forward in the most effective, efficient way possible. I completely agree, but I would also add that the way I was trained is not to necessarily treat based on theory, but based on what I can see, what I can kind of feel, or what I can hear. So what is the patient telling me is the problem? If they come in with Achilles tendinopathy and they say their ankle is really stiff, I'm going to look at how much their ankle can move. I'm going to assess their talocruel joint mobility. I'm going to check dorsiflexion and plantar flexion range of motion, inversion, eversion. And if we're finding that things are way off from what they're expected to be, there's obviously a link from a theoretical perspective that the tendon wouldn't work as well as it theoretically could. And so if there are mobility deficits, as an example, there's probably going to be an increased demand on the tendon, right? But if there's a mobility deficit and the person's completely fine, they're walking fine, I'm not necessarily going to go ahead and address it based on theoretical mechanisms. So I will take a step back again and say, as much as I think that mobility deficits could contribute to a tendon problem or sensitization of the nervous system could make tendinopathy persistent, it is still something that needs to incorporate patient values and subjective history that leads me into, well, what do I actually need to do? Because it's not necessarily me doing it for myself, it's me doing it for someone else. And so if the person is telling me that there's a problem, I'm going to go ahead and try to investigate that. And I might have to investigate it more, potentially to look at more range of motion versus just how's the tendon respond to load. Thank you for those additions. Those are all excellent points. And you've already taken a partial dive into this topic, but more specifically, how does knowledge about pain science contribute to the skillful management of tendinopathy? Well, I think to start, I think there's just a complete need to understand how pain exists and how pain persists and how people experience pain and what things make a pain experience better or worse. Because if we're going to start being effective in treating pain, we have to understand it. And so I appreciate the real strong push in 
our understanding on physiology of pain and there's so many different resources on how to manage it. And I think that's all necessary for any condition, whether it's musculoskeletal pain or other types of pain. But when we look at tendinopathy, oftentimes we can almost be duped into thinking that this is only a peripheral problem because it's only showing up as a peripheral pain. And so there's been a number of different studies that have looked at, is this condition a peripheral problem or is it associated with maybe more of a nociplastic presentation or a neuropathic presentation or is there some sort of mixture? And there's a lot of evidence, I think, that shows, especially when it comes to Achilles and patellar tendinopathy, those tend to be more peripherally mediated pain states. So when we think about those conditions, there's less in terms of descending inhibition impairments, or there's less pressure pain threshold impairment at remote sites. And so in those cases, we can more confidently say that this pain is coming from this periphery, or at least the, the pain input is coming more from the periphery. Some of these other conditions, such as lateral elbow tendinopathy or GTPS, they have been actually associated with more with centrally mediated symptoms. And so I think first we need to recognize that not all these tendons are going to be the same when it comes to the pain. And then we also have to recognize that when something is maybe more centrally mediated, just addressing the peripheral problem may not be as useful. The other thing to consider, I think that often goes unnoticed because there's maybe not as much research. I think there's more research coming out related to it. But the psychosocial mechanisms and the psychosocial impacts that are at fault or at play when we think about any musculoskeletal condition, but also tendinopathy specifically, things like fear or stress or anxiety or depression, all those things will mediate the pain experience. And so if we're not thinking about those things or not addressing those things, then potentially we're not going to get the same outcomes that we're looking for. In a number of different conditions, those psychosocial mechanisms are actually more prominent. And so I think first, knowing what is the evidence, some of these conditions are more peripherally mediated, some of them may be more of a mixed or nociplastic presentation. And then also considering what are the potential contributing or psychosocial variables that might play a role. All those things need to be treated holistically before we start to actually, I think, get people better faster and more well over time. I couldn't agree more. And speaking a little bit further to the pain science component, I often tell people, and that includes my patients, that one of the most valuable parts of my educational career was when I learned more about pain science. At first, I was resistant to the process, and I thought it seemed a little bit over the top, etc., but it's helped immensely in everything that I do in the clinic. It's helped with everything from clinical reasoning to communication skills and most importantly with patient outcomes. So I can't say strongly enough that I encourage any healthcare professional who doesn't have a solid grasp on a topic like pain science to go obtain that particular education. And building off that point, I know this is potentially a massive topic that we could spend all day talking about, but What's your best brief advice for clinicians that are trying to manage tendinopathy in the clinic? 
I think I have two pieces, but again, take it for what it's worth from a, a single person like me. I think first thing to think about is tendinopathy takes time. So there's not a quick fix for this. There might be a symptomatic reduction in the short term, but to treat somebody's functional movement dysfunction or their self-reported disability related to some of these tendons, it's a long-term process and it can take months, if not even longer than that, to really get people back to where they want to be. So don't feel bad, don't feel stressed, don't feel rushed to try to get this person back sooner because it's going to take some time. The other thing to think about is to think beyond the tendon. And so the peripheral pain is typically going to show up in a localized spot, you know, just a couple centimeters proximal to the the calcaneus is where the Achilles tendinopathy is probably going to be. But the Achilles tendon is one component of the muscle tendon unit of the calf. And the calf is functional during a lot of different things like walking or running when people with the problem will complain of pain. But we also need to look at proximal contributions of what's the knee doing? What's the hip doing? What's the trunk doing when you're running? What's the forefoot and what's the midfoot doing when you're running? What is the ankle doing when you're running? All these things need to play a role and they all need to be evaluated to some extent, although the pain might be present in a specific area and you might think, okay, let me load them up with eccentrics or high load resistance or isometrics because that's what the last paper showed me that was effective. There's more to it than the tendon and those tendons take time. So I think if we consider movement to be more holistic, which I think we're already doing, but if we recognize that tendons might present as a painful location or a warning sign for a bigger problem, I think that's important. And then we also recognize that this isn't going to go away overnight. I think that's an essential component too. Those are two great points and thank you for making them. And I know we've dabbled in this to a limited extent already, but given all of your knowledge and experience on this particular topic, if you were in charge of how the profession moves forward with respect to tendinopathy, what type of studies do you think, ideally speaking, should be done regarding the physical therapy profession and how to manage this group of related diagnoses? So Steve, first things first, no one should put me in charge of anything in the profession. (laughs) (laughs) And secondly, we talked about a few things that I think are lacking. And I think those are some areas that need to be filled. And so I would like to see more pragmatic trials. I like to see those more in general. I obviously see the value of less pragmatic, more controlled trials. But I think if we want to see what actually happens in clinic and include the people that would be treated in clinic and how you would treat them in clinic. I also want to see some long-term studies. And so I, I was actually speaking to Angie Fearon not long ago, and she had a study that looked at GTPS as a long-term follow-up 11 years out. And that's just unheard of in our literature. You see some of that stuff in surgical literature, but not for us. I would love to see longer-term longitudinal trials that really see not just in the short term when a lot of people will get better regardless of what we do, but how does this person do long-term? Do they stay well after they've gotten better? Do they decline after a certain time point? We don't know that. And one of the other things that was in her study actually was that people with GTPS, they were more at risk for developing hip OA. And so 
maybe these people in the short term, they get better, but are they at risk for secondary conditions? Are they at risk for something else that we need to potentially start into the prevention realm? these individuals. So I would love to see these longer term studies. I would love to see pragmatic studies, but I don't want to see us moving all into one direction. I would love to see a spectrum of research to help us kind of fill these gaps and identify what what other gaps we need to investigate a little bit further. But again, I'm not leading that charge. I know there's a lot of people that are much smarter and well equipped to do that than me, for sure. Those are all great ideas. And While I note your stance and hesitation, once somebody puts me in charge of determining who should lead the profession forward, I'm certainly going to consider your CV. That point aside, for future consideration, this has been a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you for joining the show on the other side of the microphone. I hope that wasn't too bizarre of an experience for you. And more importantly, thank you for all the work that you do with the profession. It's certainly appreciated. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.